Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening your eyes to a new view of life. I'm thrilled you joined us today. You know, here at Open Your Eyes, we're on a mission to help people see themselves in that new way, to put on a new mindset. With several hundred thousand downloads of Open Your Eyes podcasts, you might find it interesting. The most popular episode is titled, Your Time Will Come. That says to me, in today's day and age, we're all looking for hope, positivity, and a view that good things are coming. So today, I hope on this podcast, you hear exactly that. I hope this podcast gives you a new perspective, fresh paradigms, and empowers you with the tools to think and live better. So let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how, starting today, the tide is turning in your life. You know, beginning in the late 1940s, every year, there has been a reunion of sorts, a commemoration that's attended by a few, but admired by many. It commemorates the turning of the tide in the world. And without the sacrifices made by those attending, your life and mine would be different today. Most recently, the reunion was held at Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And it's no ordinary reunion. It isn't a family reunion or a reunion of a sports team, but the reunion is for the Raiders, not the NFL team, but another team called the Raiders. The high point of each reunion is a solemn private ceremony in which the surviving Raiders perform a roll call of both the living and the dead. Then those alive toast those who have since passed on and make mention of those who died in the previous year. They toast with specially made goblets. The table is set for this reunion, and the goblets of those who were passed on are turned upside down. And over the 75 years that this reunion has taken place, the goblets have been maintained by the U.S. Air Force Academy, and they are on display throughout the year at the Cadets Center. The cadets carefully watch over the goblets, and each time a raider dies, the inscription of their name and rank is removed and placed upside down so as to be read when the goblet is inverted. So, why the Air Force tradition? Why the attention to these fallen airmen? What did the Raiders do? Well, in 1942, the United States and its allies were trying to gain a foothold in World War II. Just five months earlier, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor killed 2,400 Americans, destroyed 20 ships and 300 airplanes, and crippled the U.S. forces in the Pacific. You see, the Japanese had an impenetrable force. They had 10 aircraft carriers, the largest and most modern carrier fleet in the world. The Japanese command believed they could not be defeated, and they used their massive navy to drop a net over their island that kept any enemy forces from getting close to Japan. Months earlier, in a meeting at the White House, President Roosevelt told the Joint Chiefs of Staff to figure out how to bomb Japan as soon as possible. He needed to turn the tide in his favor. But almost every scenario they considered didn't work. There was no way to fly the distance to Japan from any airbase controlled by the Allies. Then the idea surfaced that perhaps they could launch long-range bombers from an aircraft carrier, something that had never been done. James Doolittle, a military test pilot, proved he could take a heavy, big, loaded B-25 bomber 
and take off from an aircraft carrier. And he did this by simulating the takeoff on a runway at his Air Force base. He painted the dimensions of the deck of a carrier on the runway and attempted the takeoff over and over again. But that was just one problem to overcome. You see, they couldn't load enough fuel on the planes to make a round trip. Even if they got close with the aircraft carrier, they still didn't have enough fuel to fly to Japan and back to the carrier again. Under any scenario, it was a one-way trip. It was determined that the planes could fly to Japan, complete their bombing run, and then try to make it over the East China Sea to China. There they would land wherever they could. But there were extreme risks. Wind could cause the planes to run out of fuel. If they had mechanical failures or they were shot down, they would have no safe harbor. Most of all, those participating in the raid knew if they were captured by the Japanese, they would be tortured and killed. At 7.30 in the morning on April 18th, the U.S. aircraft carrier was 750 miles from Japan. The carrier group was spotted by a small Japanese picket boat. The picket boat was sunk, but the raiders knew that the boat had radioed the location. If they waited any longer, the carrier would be under attack. So Doolittle ordered the launch, even though they were still hundreds of miles from their planned launching location. Even though none of the pilots had never launched from an aircraft carrier, all 16 aircraft successfully took off. Most of the planes scraped the surface of the water for hundreds of feet before gaining altitude. The aircraft arrived over Japan by early afternoon. They climbed to 1,500 feet and bombed targets in Yokohama, Nagoya, Kobe, and Osaka. In truth, the bombs did very little damage. After the bombs were released, the planes came under attack by enemy fighters. They headed east towards the East China Sea. One plane was extremely low on fuel, so Captain York, the pilot, elected to head towards the Soviet Union. They were trying to reach the shores of China, then onto a landing strip at Zuzu, but night was approaching. Every plane was low on fuel, and the weather was deteriorating. All the crews soon realized they could not reach their intended destination. And all 15 aircraft reached the Chinese coast after 13 hours of flight and either crash-landed or bailed out. Two crews went missing altogether. One crew was killed bailing out of the plane. The flight engineer and bombardier from one crew were later found drowned in the ocean, still in the plane. The crew that flew to the Soviet Union made it, but the Soviet Union held them prisoner for over a year. Doolittle and his crew, after parachuting into China, received assistance from Chinese soldiers and an American missionary living there. And of the 80 crewmen involved, 69 eventually avoided being killed or captured by the Japanese. Those that were captured were executed. The Chinese helped the Americans escape, and they paid dearly. As a result, the Japanese began a campaign known as Operation Sego. In retaliation for helping the Americans, the Japanese laid waste to 20,000 square miles of the Chinese coastline. They killed an estimated 10,000 Chinese civilians. They killed anything living, humans, cows, hogs, didn't matter. They violated the women and looted the homes. This started a military reign of terror so bad, it would later be called the Rape of Nanchang. So, why did Roosevelt want the attack? What was so important about this symbolic mission of reaching Japan with American aircraft? Why sacrifice the aircraft, the men, and eventually put at risk the Chinese citizens? Well, you got to understand, in 1942, the Allies were in bad shape. 
After Pearl Harbor, the production of ships and aircraft was slow to ramp up. Much of the American military production was going to Europe. In the Pacific theater, the Allies had retreated from one position to another, and the Japanese seemed invincible. The Allies somehow needed to turn the tide. Turning the tide wouldn't be easy. You know, tide seems like an immovable force. But Roosevelt knew the Japanese felt invincible, and an attack on their turf, like the one his country felt with Pearl Harbor, would send a clear message that the Allies were resolved. He also needed to turn the tide in the minds of his own countrymen. People needed hope. Well, the attack, however small and symbolic it was, worked. The Japanese realized they were vulnerable. And from that point on, they kept four fighter groups home to protect Japan, leaving the ships in the Pacific more exposed. And with a smaller Japanese air force in the Pacific, the Allies would eventually gain victory at Midway a major turning point in the war. So for you and me, who are trying to turn the tide in our life, perhaps we can learn from the Raiders. You see, all 80 of them knew it was a one-way trip. They understood the likelihood of their coming back home was pretty low. At best, they would crash land in an unfamiliar land in hazardous circumstances, but they went anyway. They knew they would be captured and tortured. They went anyway. They knew they were flying into the belly of the beast. They went anyway. You can see why the cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy care for and display the goblets used to toast these brave men every year at their reunion. Cadets learn from the bravery of those who have gone before. You and I are not fighting a war like the Raiders fought, but we are fighting nonetheless. We fight to win the battles in our day. We fight to achieve goals, to provide for our families, to build a business that enhances lives, and to rise to make our lives the lives we know we're meant to live. And for me, at least, this is a challenge. Yes, a battle. But the lesson we learn from the Raiders is that turning the tide in your favor matters. It's worth the effort. Showing your resolve matters. Declaring, I am here and I will not go away, matters. Saying, I will persevere and win this fight, matters. Turning the tide is critical to reaching your goals. And I don't know what battles you're facing today, but I suspect, like me, you have a few. Our kids battle putting down the screen or the phone. Our teams battle their faith in themselves and in your business. We wonder if we can change or reach the goals we've set out in life. We have demons, disagreements, discouragement, disappointment, and dread taking on the latest difficulty that has come our way. But here's the thing. You can turn the tide in your favor. And when you do, the energy, the positivity, and the faith you need to win can and does come your way. So how then do we turn the tide in the challenges we face? Well, the first step is to borrow a page from President Roosevelt's playbook. In the few minutes that Doolittle's planes flew over Japan, something very important happened. It changed perspective. The Japanese now saw they were vulnerable. The Allies saw they could get to the heart of the enemy territory. It was the change in perspective that enabled much of what would follow. And the same goes for you and me. Perhaps our first move is to alter our perspective. 
you know, one of the most helpful things I ever did as a parent was change the way I looked at my children. While there are a lot of good things about them I admired, I found I gained strength when I looked at them through the lens of who they were becoming. What this did was enabled me to see that they would soon be grown and capable adults, and I would likely be learning from them. And this introduced a sense of respect in our communications. I started to act differently because I saw them differently. Perspective can empower us with strength. There's something incredibly empowering when you decide that no matter where you've been, what has been happening, that this day is the day the tide begins to turn. Perhaps today is the beginning of a new phase, a shift in the tide, and a look ahead to a new era in your life. This new beginning will not be automatic or predictable. It won't come fast and it won't be without setbacks, but it will result in a new you, new norms, new behaviors, and new approaches to your way of living. Today is the beginning of the beginning. So get ready. The tide is turning. Something happens inside of me when I decide to adopt this attitude. Today, the tide is turning. It causes me to look for good things, the good things that God has in store, because I believe that heaven does pay attention to the negative and difficult in our life and sends to us positive things and people that can help us turn the tide. So start to feed your mind things that will turn the tide on your perspective. We don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. And our worldview is shaped by the lens of our own life experiences, the news we consume, the people we know, our network of friends, and what we pay attention to. So today, jettison the old and bring in the new that coincides with your changing tide. And here's what I see. You're headed towards much better times. I see you taking small and deliberate steps towards who you want to be and what you know you can do. The tide today is energetic, and you can do something today to turn the tide. You've learned from the past. The habits or thinking that held you back are no longer relevant. You have a pair of new glasses and see through a new lens, and you can see a new beginning. You can turn the tide simply by seeing a new way of life. Even in the most difficult of times, your perspective can give you peace and hope. On October 8, 1871, in downtown Chicago, things seemed normal at 8.30 p.m. in a city of over 375,000 people. That night in October, on Decoven Street, in a small barn, a cow kicked over a lantern and a fire started to burn the barn. Before fire crews could be summoned, the adjacent building also caught on fire. The preceding summer had been exceptionally dry, and as a result, there was a lot of dry fuel for the fire. Soon, the fire reached the business district. They hoped as the fire reached the river, it would serve as a fire break. But along the river's edge were lumber yards and barges, and when the fire reached these huge sources of fuel, it exploded, and the flaming debris blew across the river, landed on roofs, and set ablaze the south side gas works. As the fire spread on the other side of the river and moved towards the heart of the city, the mayor of Chicago reached out to adjacent cities for help. The fire burned unchecked from building to building, block to block, and by 2.30 the next day, the courthouse at the center of the city had burned to the ground. Finally, 
Late in the day on October 9th, it started to rain and the fire succumbed to the moisture and the firefighters' efforts. The Chicago fire destroyed more than 2,000 acres, 73 miles of roads, 2,000 lampposts, 17,500 buildings, and $222 million in property was gone. Over 90,000 of the city's 324,000 residents were left homeless. 300 people died. Now, real estate speculators and investors lost millions. Horatio Spafford was one of them. Like so many devastated by the fire, he struggled to recover from his losses. Not long after the fire, his friend was preaching in England and invited Horatio and his family to come there to visit. So Horatio's wife and four daughters boarded a steamship and set out for England. Horatio planned to follow shortly thereafter. The steamship set out with 313 passengers on board. Halfway across the Atlantic, about 2 o'clock in the morning, the ship encountered an iron clipper named the Loch Urn. Both ships neglected to avoid each other. As they were about to collide, the captain of the Loch Urn turned his ship sharply. But the steamship came across his bow and he hit her broadside. The passengers were all awakened by the collision. At first, the crew and the captain thought the ship was intact, but the truth was the steamship was broken in two. Commotion and chaos overtook the passengers as the main mast collapsed, smashing several lifeboats and killing a number of people. As passengers tried to grab life preservers and push lifeboats into the water, they found that the lifeboats had been painted and were stuck fast to the deck. Finally, a few lifeboats were pulled free and a limited number of passengers fought desperately to be one of the few to get aboard. The crew of the Loch Urn helped 26 passengers and 61 crew from the steamship out of the water, but tragically, 226 passengers died. Anna Spafford survived, but her four daughters, Annie, age 12, Maggie, age 7, Bessie, 4, and their 18-month-old baby drowned. As a parent, how do you cope with such loss? What would you say to your husband? Well, Anna sent a telegram to her husband that said, Saved alone, what shall I do? Well, Horatio immediately boarded a ship and struck out for England to reach and comfort his grieving wife. At one point during his voyage, the captain of the ship, aware of the tragedy that had struck the Spafford family, summoned Horatio to the deck to tell him that they were now passing over the spot where the shipwreck had occurred. As Horatio looked down at the billowing waves and thought about his daughters buried there, words of comfort and hope filled his heart and mind, and he wrote them down, and they have since become the lyrics of a well-beloved hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. One of the verses in that hymn says, When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to know it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, I don't know what prompted him to write these words. So many people in choirs and church congregations sing today. But I believe he needed a measure of resolve to help him turn the tide, to find peace within this tragedy that had come his way, and to write his own ship so he could be empowered to comfort his wife so that they could go on with their lives. He put his new perspective to verse, 
and it solidified how we chose to view his battle and how we approached his life and how he would turn his tide after his devastating losses. Next, to turn your tide, you're going to need help. Too often we don't lean into the help that's available to us. Even the earth needs help to guide its tides. The moon orbits the earth in the same direction as the earth rotates on its axis. So it takes slightly more than a day, about 24 hours and 50 minutes for the moon to return to the same location in the sky. And during this time, it passes overhead once and underfoot once. The gravitational pull created by the moon weakens with distance from the moon and strengthens with its proximity to the earth. So the changing distance separating the moon and the earth affects ocean tides. Likewise, when we bring others who can help us in proximity to us, like the moon moves the tide of the earth, others can move the tides in our life. And when I reflect on my life and the times in which I had to turn the tide, it has often been because of someone else who was helping me. You know, when I was a young boy, I loved to swim. When my friends and I would arrive at the pool, most of us would throw off our clothes and leap into the deep end of the pool. One of my friends, however, was always worried about the cold temperature of the water in the pool. He would walk to the shallow end and spend endless minutes putting his feet in until they acclimatized, then his legs up to his knees, then to his waist, and then the cold really hit. You know how it feels when cold water hits your stomach? All the time he was enduring this agony, we were diving, racing, and enjoying the water. When we say to ourselves, the water is too cold to jump in, it affects the way we go about doing things, the way we live our life. But when you decide the tide is turning, you're more likely to jump in and enjoy the water. I also believe that the tide turns in our life when we give more of ourselves to God. That means when we trust that when we turn to Him, His tide, His goodness begins to have more influence in our life. As Jeremiah says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Solani was born in Colombo, Sri Lanka. A smart and capable young woman, she would go on to earn degrees from Cambridge and the University of Oxford. She worked as an economist, and as such, she married a fellow economist, Stephen Lissenberg. Together, the couple had two sons, Vic and Mali. They had escaped for Christmas to Yala National Park in Sri Lanka, about 200 miles from her parents' home. The park is an island off the coast of Sri Lanka, and it's home to elephants and leopards and all type of aquatic life. It is the most visited park in the country with hotels along the coast. There, Sonali, her husband, two sons, her parents, and a friend spent four days together celebrating Christmas. It was the morning of December 26th, and they were preparing to leave. Sonali was chatting with her friend in the doorway of their hotel room. Just then, her friend said, Oh my, the sea is coming in. Sonali looked behind her, and a wave rose to the height of the trees between their room and the beach. She yelled to her husband to come and look. She then yelled to her son to shut the door, and he did. But the waves continued to rise over the trees and onto the patio. She yelled to her husband to come now. She grabbed her two sons and she ran out the front door ahead of her husband. She didn't stop 
to knock on the door of her parents' hotel room. Something said to her, just run. The waves were coming fast. They ran up the driveway of the hotel. The boys were barefoot. She didn't say a word. She just held onto their hands and ran. Ahead, a jeep was moving and stopped. She threw her son into the jeep and then the other. They jumped aboard while the jeep was moving and the jeep lunged ahead to find a dry road. Her friend and her friend's parents got halfway aboard the jeep, but her friend's mother lost her grip and fell behind the jeep and her friend jumped out of the jeep looking towards Sonali as they drove away. The driver didn't stop. He was driving as fast as he could. She yelled to her husband that they didn't get her parents. And with this, her son burst into tears. They were leaving her parents behind. As they reached the end of the hotel driveway, the water caught up to the Jeep and was rising fast. Soon the water filled the Jeep and it began rocking it from side to side. Then the Jeep overturned and sunk into the waves. For Sonali, everything hurt. She found herself spinning fast over and over again under the water. The water was gray and brown, and she was being pummeled by something large and heavy. Suddenly, she knew she was going to die. She couldn't breathe. Then, all of a sudden, she could. Her head was above water, and all she could see was water. She was being swept along at a tremendous speed, and there was nothing to hold on to. Trees and debris were swirling around her. Suddenly, she thought of her boys. She had to find them. She spotted a boy. And he was screaming, Daddy, Daddy, and he was clinging to a car seat. Could that be her son? She tried to swim towards him, and when she approached, she realized it wasn't her son. Just then, she was knocked sideways, and the tide swept her under again. Then she saw a branch hanging above the water. She lunged to grab it, and clinging to it with both hands, she pulled herself up, eventually finding the ground with her feet. She couldn't breathe. She hunched over to get the salt water from her lungs, and she frantically looked for her family. They were nowhere to be seen. After a while, she heard voices, and two men approached. She had been thrown and thrashed about so heavily, most of her clothes were gone. She was cut, bruised, and broken. Everything around her had disappeared. And unbeknownst to her at the time, the small island was in the direct path of a massive tsunami which pushed waves 30 feet high over the island. She had been taken inland over two miles. She would soon learn that her husband, two sons, parents, her best friend, and her best friend's mother did not survive. Some of their bodies would never be found. The loss was devastating and debilitating for her. Following the tsunami, she was taken to her parents' house in Colombo. There she stayed for weeks beneath the covers, hoarding sleeping pills and trying to deal with the disbelief of what had happened. She would later attempt suicide. Understandably, she found that the tide of emotion and grief was far more powerful than the actual waves that took her family from her. And the emotional tides started to rob her of her life. Everything reminded her of her husband and children. Everything in the house. Her life was constant pain inside. She would say, their promise, my children's possibilities, still lingered in our home. I must stop remembering. I must keep them in a faraway place. The more I remember, the greater the agony. However, she started to look for a way to turn the tide, 
to fight back the guilt and grief that she felt. Her therapist, seeing the need to create some momentum towards moving forward, suggested that she write down her memories. The hope was that she would relax from the trauma when she did. Well, the result was her book entitled Wave. And what her journaling taught her is this. She can keep her children alive within her. And the tide in her life began to move in a direction of peace and hope. And the same, I believe, can happen for you and me. No matter what difficulties we are facing, the tide can turn. There is hope. Now, there are some of you listening to this podcast today who are carrying too much debt. Today is the day to turn the tide. Some of you need to learn to finally act with more intention towards your goals or your business. Get ready. Your tide is turning. Others need to rise and do the difficult thing that you've been facing for a while now. Your tide is turning. And some of you need some help to overcome. Your tide is turning. Get ready. Today is the day. So watch. As you decide the tide is turning, as you put on a new perspective, as you watch the words you use, as you seek the help you need and turn to God to help you turn the tide, you will find that as the author says, it is the set of the soul that decides the goal and not the calm or the strife in your life. Your tide is turning. I'm certain of it. Put on this mindset today and today will be a better day. This week will be a better week and you will be a better version of you. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. And join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.